Hey, got a question for you. Did they ever tell you this when you were growing up? I know they told me this all the time. Did they tell you that sticks and stones will break your bones, but... Yeah, they told me that too. They told me sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Am I, am I right? I mean, sticks and stones may break my bones, but sometimes, who are we kidding? Words really hurt too. I'm sure you know that. If you think about it, I, you probably can come up with something specific. Somewhere along the way that was spoken into your life, and even though it may have been a long time ago, sometimes now still, sometimes it still hurts. Because someone accused you of something that wasn't true. Someone passed along a false rumor about you. They spread some kind of unkind characterization about who you are, some kind of a lie, some kind of a threat, an insult of some sort. I don't know exactly what they said about you, but who are we kidding? Sticks and stones are not the only thing in life that really can hurt us. Now, I say that because this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. And this is a passage, if you look at it closely, it's all about hurtful words. And so if you can relate to that in any way, because somewhere along the way, somebody said something about you, then what Peter is going to say in these verses here today is going to hit close to home for you. Because anytime someone says something bad about us, and especially when they say something bad about us, and we're trying to do right, we're trying to do good, every single time that happens, it hurts. And so Peter says in... 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, he begins by saying this, finally. And when he says finally, he's alerting the reader here that this is the summation to everything that we have been talking about for some time here. In fact, for the past chapter and a half, this is the summation to what he's been saying. It all began back in chapter 2 and verse 12 when Peter wrote this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. This is the basic underlying premise of what we've been studying together for the last month and a half. They are making accusations, Peter says. I'm well aware of this. They are false. They are uninformed. They are being intentionally hurtful to you. They're trying to bully you through their words and their threats and their accusations into getting you to surrender your Christian convictions. But play the long game, he says. Don't give in to their intimidation. Keep on doing what you know is right. Live such good lives over the long haul among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And then he begins to unpack this in different situations. And he begins with living under the government urging his readers to live with submission and honor even to the government rulers and especially those that they don't particularly agree with or who maybe aren't exactly treating them fairly. And then speaking to servants and slaves, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 18, urging them to bear up under them, even when the masters they are serving under are literally crooked. 
And then speaking to wives in chapter 3, verse 1. Even the ones who find themselves married to a man who does not share their faith. I like how Pastor Tom put it last week. Let the attractiveness of your inner self, your character, shine from the inside out in the midst of these difficult, maybe even unfair relationships that we find ourselves in. So he says, now finally then... All of you, no matter where life finds you, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a slave, a free man, a Jew, a Gentile, whatever your station in life is, all of you, let the goodness of Jesus shine from the inside out as a part of this long game strategy of enduring for the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially when they are saying hurtful things about you. So in verse 8, Read along with me. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, this is a passage about enduring suffering. But when you look back over the verses carefully, all of the suffering that it describes, all of it comes from hurtful speech. Speaking evil, hurling insults, verse 9. Telling lies, verse 10. Uttering threats, verse 14. Malicious talk, slander, verse 16. Now Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who find themselves increasingly despised and marginalized in their culture. They are living under withering attacks on their reputation because of their Christian convictions. Now from history, we know that greater persecution beyond just verbal intimidation is soon to come. There's going to be loss of life and liberty and religious freedom, but this open season of hateful speech against Christians is laying the foundation for something far worse that is soon to come. Until recently, this concept of a cultural campaign of insults was not a significant part of our culture. It's something that typically has happened in honor-shame cultures. But things are changing, and we are beginning to understand this more. We're starting to get what it is that would make someone live in fear of a cascade of hurtful words. Every year, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary adds in new entries for words that we never needed before but have come to represent something that is now so functional to our life that the word is actually needed in our dictionary. The new entries for 2021 were recently added in this year. For the first time in history, there's an entry for something that is called cancel culture. 
Now, five years ago, if you'd asked me what cancel culture is, I wouldn't have had any idea at all. To get canceled would have meant like you had a TV show and the ratings were bad. I don't know. But I totally understand what this word means now, even without the dictionary. To cancel someone means a torrent of public verbal shaming that is intended to make them socially radioactive, untouchable. And this is carried out upon them for something that they have done that is deemed to be unacceptable by the prevailing culture. Something they did, something they said, some opinion they once held, some conviction they hold now, someone that they support in some way, someone they do business with. The intent is that through this canceling, they will be effectively shunned from culture. Social media, of course, has escalated this phenomenon, but clearly it is more than that. And once you are in the crosshairs of cancel culture, and once the torrent of insults begins, the speed and the force of it can be stunning. We call it today cancel culture. It's even in the dictionary. But really, it's just a modern take on public shaming. Now, this may be a new phenomenon to us, but Peter's readers, they knew all about it. Now, they didn't have Twitter or TikTok or you know, flash mobs, but they knew all about public verbal shaming, mischaracterizing someone who was out of step with the prevailing cultural values, labeling them, demonizing them, and in a cascading chorus, shouting out that they are a threat to the peace of society. And these Christians of Asia Minor were in the crosshairs of the cancel culture of their day. Who are we kidding? Words can never hurt me. Words can bring tremendous suffering into someone's life. So what's a Christian to do in all of this? What is our calling in the midst of an increasingly verbally hostile culture in which followers of Jesus are increasingly out of step with the values of the day? Perhaps now, more than ever, these verses right here matter to our living. Your calling in all of this To those who are marginalized and maligned. First, the positive side is in verse 8. He says this, Finally, all of you, husbands, wives, slave, free men, Jew, Gentile, wherever you are, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. In your conduct, in your attitudes, the way you carry yourself, in your relationships, in the church, in your walk, in the world, all of you carry yourselves with such striking, uncultural goodness that eventually it cannot help but arrest the attention of even your fiercest critics. Here's the flip side of the command in verse 9. He says, and do not repay evil with evil. Or insult with insult, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You were called to this, to repay insults with blessing. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 that if you are good to those, if you are loving to those, if you do favors to those who only turn around and give it back to you, that doesn't distinguish you in any way from anyone else, because in essence, everybody does that. Everybody is good to those who are good to them. They do favors for those who do favors back to them. But when you give love to those who are not giving it back, 
In this you demonstrate that you are children of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. So Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. So Peter says here in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. Do not give back insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. And this word here for blessing, eulogia, literally means to speak well of them. Because to this you were called. So when someone speaks insult to you, it is your calling to speak well of them and back to them. That's ridiculous. Nobody does that. Why in the world would we be called to do that? Because we've been called, chapter 2 says, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And what did he do? When they insulted him, he did not return the favor. And when they made threats, he did not threaten back. In fact, he responded by praying for them. We are people as Christians, followers of Jesus, who believe in blessing. We believe in receiving blessing, unworthy as we are. And we believe in giving blessing, unworthy as they are. As Christians, we believe fundamentally in unworthy people receiving undeserved blessing. And we believe it when we're getting it, and we prove it when we are giving it. We are called to do this. And then beginning in verse 10, Peter takes us back to Psalm 34. Now look at your Bible there. I I don't know how it looks in your Bible, but in somehow it's either in a different font or it's set out in quotation marks. This is how you can tell in your Bible that it's quoting from a different part of the Bible. And if you look closely there by the verse or down at the bottom, there should be a note that says where it's quoting from. This quotation is coming from Psalm 34 in the Old Testament. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. So does this mean if I hold my tongue and I don't return evil that I am promised good days and more of them? Well, that's certainly part of it. But do you know the interesting thing about Psalm 34? If, if you turn back there and look at it, we know when David wrote it. And the interesting thing is he wrote it when he was having a really, really bad day. David was being publicly defamed. He was being hunted down by the authorities. He was trying to honor an unworthy ruler. He was living life on the run as a fugitive. And he just had this very embarrassing episode when he was about to get killed. And the only way out he could get was publicly acting as if he was stark, raving mad. He wrote this when he was having a really bad day. There is a promise in all of this. But the promise is not a one-to-one correlation that if we bridle our tongue and just respond with nice words, that everything is going to be easy, the sun will always be shining, and our toast will always land buttered side up. The truth is, just like everyone else, we will have hard days too. We will have dry seasons. We will walk through valleys of deepest shadow. 
Yes, I do love life, and I do desire good days, but the unshakable promise is this, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What is it worth to you to know that the eyes of Almighty God are fixed upon you on your very best day and on your very worst day? To know that his ear is tuned to your prayers and is tuned to your cries, that he hears your groaning, that his face is turned towards you with favor and it is not against you. Even if you should find yourself suffering unfairly right now, that is not unseen by him. Your cries are not unheard. You are not unremembered. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayers. So what is the expectation in all of this? If we just keep on doing what is right and do not take their bait and retaliate to their hurtful insults and accusations. Verse 13 says, who is going to harm you? If you are eager to do good. Now, of course, the contrarian in the room is going to say, uh, Peter, take your rose-colored glasses off, brother. People are standing in line to harm us. What do you mean if you do good, who is there to harm you? Where do I begin? A ton of people are there to harm us. Don't be mistaken. Peter is a realist. After all, the very reason he's writing this letter is because his sisters and his brothers are the targets of hurtful talk. Misinformed accusations, public insults. Peter knows this. He's experienced this, and he's experienced much worse than this. But even so, Peter still encourages them that we should live with a sense of positive expectation. We still should bounce up every day with the expectation, if we do what is right, if we live with virtue, if we speak with grace, we should still, as a general rule, expect to be commended for this and protected in this. And I say this because when we're being marginalized for our faith, it may be tempting to become fatalistic that every slight we experience is some kind of persecution. Every offense is a sign of impending doom. We should still get up every single morning positive. Positive expectation that if we do what is good, it will pay off and we will receive what is good. If we tell the truth, if we treat people with honor, if we're respectful and gracious, if we live in such a way that the goodness of God shines out of us, we can and should expect good to happen and that harm will not come. We should expect that. But, verses 14 says, even if, I don't like it when the Bible says, but even if. You know why? Because it is setting up a worst case scenario. But even if. You know what but even if is? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're saying, the Lord will deliver us from this furnace of blazing fire. But even if he does not, we're not, we're going to do what is right. We will not bow down to that idol. But even if. That is Paul saying, I hope to come and see you soon, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, I'm going to stand for Jesus and I'm going to receive what is coming with joy. We are living, expecting a positive outcome for doing what is right, but even if. 
And in fact, what Peter is setting up here is not a worst-case scenario. He's setting up a worst-case opportunity. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, how am I blessed if I end up suffering? Because his eye is upon me, because his ear is tuned to me, because his face is turned toward me, because they can take everything in this life away from me, but they cannot take my living hope. Because the very worst day with Jesus beats the very best day without Jesus every single time. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be Frightened. That, that word there for frightened, it, it literally means quaking, twisting, trembling. Don't be shaken by their threats. Their threats against you as a child of God are ultimately empty threats. You are sons and daughters of the Most High God. You are His most treasured possession in all of the earth. His eye is upon you. His ear is tuned towards you. You have no reason to quake in your boots because of their threats. Stay focused on the one you are living to please, and that is Christ. says in verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. It means sanctify him, set him apart. He's in a category all by himself. Who are you trying to please? There's one person in that category, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one I'm living to please. He's the one alone that I serve. I worship him only. I strive to honor him only. Only. No, I'm not looking to get canceled. I don't desire that. I don't want to be threatened or harassed or harmed or hurt. I love life. I want more good days, not less of them. But if in the end I end up publicly shunned by everyone who is anyone, it can't change the fact that in the place that matters most and with the one who matters most, I'm chosen, I am precious, I'm irrevocably blessed. And I'll take it because still, The very worst day with Jesus beats the very best day without Jesus every single time. Do not quake in your boots because of their threats, but set apart Christ in your heart as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer. For a long time, 1 Peter 3.15 was my life verse. I suppose it still is but today for a different reason than I started out. Early on, with a great passion to learn and to know the truth of Scripture, I was drawn to this biblical admonition. Always be prepared to give an answer. Maybe in your Bible it says, always be ready to make a defense. And it it does mean that. The word means like a legal defense. The word is apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics from. This Christian field of study dedicated to demonstrating the reasonableness of the Christian faith against the critics and the skeptics and to the seekers. It's it's a critically important field of study here here in our church. He's sitting in here this morning. Jim Porchot is is dedicated to this ministry. And we're we're so thankful for that because it's valuable. Early on, I wanted to be able to answer all the questions, all of them. My ambition was to be the Bible answer man, ready to answer anyone who had questions about the Bible or who had claims against the Bible. Always be ready to give an answer. But for me, it took some time to really soak in that here in this verse, 
actually, Peter has one very specific question in mind and one very specific answer. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, this is the long-term lifestyle strategy that Peter has been urging us to hold on to, and it takes us all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 12. Hold on to the vision where we pray that one day all of this will land. That by praying the long game of extraordinarily good behavior, especially in the midst of unfair circumstances, showing respect even when you're being mistreated, speaking back blessing even when you're getting insults, living kind-spirited even when they are being mean-spirited. All of this is with the hope and the prayer and the expectation that eventually you will one day be asked the question, okay, so what in the world is this all about? Why in the world, when you've been publicly canceled, personally maligned, culturally marginalized, falsely accused, insulted, threatened, mischaracterized, anyone else I would have known in the world would have just grown bitter, thrown in the towel, laid down, and died. So why in the world are you still bouncing back up every single day with such hope? It's all with a vision of that day because when they say it, it's like they're setting the ball on the tee. Oh, I thought you never were going to ask. His name is Jesus. And I'd love to tell you all about him. Hope. Whenever Peter uses this word, he's always pointing to the future to come. The living hope. And that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these few and quickly passing days are only the warm-up. Because even when life is at, at At its very best, the goodness of this life is merely the prelude to an eternity of unthinkable blessing and unspeakable joy. And even when life is at its very worst, and it hurts the worst, and we suffer the most, all of this difficulty is merely a short detour that is on the way. So why in the world do you have such hope? Because I've come to experience, I've come to know that the very worst day with Jesus still beats the very best day without Jesus every single time. Literally, I would rather die with Jesus than live without him. When I pastored at Grace Point Church in Portland, two of our former pastors were there in the church. Uh, One of them was a tremendous man of God named Gordon Bohr, and he he went through a, a personal crisis when I was there. His devoted wife of 50 years had a very serious health crisis, landed her in the hospital, in the ICU, precariously hanging between life and death. He shared with me, it was actually the very next day, how he had met late that night with the team of doctors who were trying feverishly to save her life, and they shared the details of her condition, the treatment that she'd received, and they warned him. They said, you need to know that quite likely she will not live through this night. He said, I looked at them and I said, well, doc, The way we see it, there are far worse options. (laughs) He said, that really got their attention. What option exactly would be worse than that? He said, let me tell you about it. 
Even at its very best, this life is merely the prelude to an eternity of unending life and unspeakable joy. And even those days that are the hardest are nothing more than a short detour on the way. I'll tell you why I still have hope. Because I have Jesus. And I would love to tell you about him. And do this when you get the chance with respectfulness. Don't be one of those Christians when they finally get the mic. Be it gently. Do it respectfully. Eugene Peterson translated courteously. I like that. I feel like we could all use a little more common courtesy. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 16 says, And the sense of this shame isn't about that you're going to finally, aha, embarrass them. But the shame is rather a realization from their perspective of how wrong their position has been about Christians and the sincerity of their faith. With such respectfulness that they will eventually feel shame over their unfair insults. Because you were willing to play the long game of good living, even in the midst of your unfair circumstances, because you were willing to conduct yourselves respectfully, even in the midst of difficult relationships, because you did not take the bait in a culture of increasing verbal hostility. And when anyone else would have thrown in the towel, when anyone else would have just grown bitter, laid down and died, why are you still getting up with such grace and unbreakable hope? I'd love to tell you about him. His name is Jesus, and I can promise you, if you really know him, the worst day with Jesus beats the best day without Jesus every single time. I don't know exactly what this morning brings you in here with. I, I, I hope that it doesn't find you experiencing suffering. Certainly not for your faith, certainly not for doing right. I hope that is not your condition today. But even if, but even if that should be the case, I hope that you would have the faith to believe that this worst case scenario actually might be God's setup for a worst case opportunity. That through the consistent goodness of your life, through the courtesy even of your words, one day God may be pleased to use the testimony of your life to help transform even a stone-cold critic into a die-hard believer in Jesus. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason For the hope that you have gently, respectfully, keeping a clear conscience so that those who maliciously speak against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their false accusations. If there is any possibility that you are listening to me today and you have never had the opportunity to experience the reality of Jesus Christ, I want to give you this promise that the very worst day with Jesus beats the very best day without Jesus every single time. And that is only to speak of this life. There are worse options. Because this life at its very best, with all of its goodness and enjoyment, is merely the prelude to an eternity of unending life and unspeakable joy. And this life at its very hardest is merely a short detour on the way to the same. 
very worst day with Jesus beats the very best day without Jesus every single time. I would encourage you, I would invite you right now to take Jesus up on his offer that all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And it's really just that simple. You could pray a prayer in your heart right now that would be as simple as this, saying, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And I believe that you paid the price for me so that I could be forgiven, I could be family, and I could experience good and blessing forever with the promise that your eye is upon me, that your ear is listening to me, and your faith is turned towards me with blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as many as received Jesus Christ, to them you gave the right to become children of God. We thank you that even when we walk through the valley of deepest shadow, even when we go through seasons of dryness, even when we experience difficult days, still your eye is upon us, your ear is tuned towards us, your face is turned towards us with blessing. We are not unremembered, we are not unforgotten, we are precious, chosen, and choice. In your sight, we thank you for your unshakable word. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to begin to see some of our worst-case scenarios as worst-case opportunities, that you are preparing to use the consistent goodness of our life, the Spirit of Jesus shining out of us as opportunities to answer that most important question, why we still have hope even when life can be so unfair. Lord, I pray that we'd be ready. I pray that we'd be prepared. And when the doors of opportunity swing wide open, we would walk through and tell them about your son, Jesus. For truly, he means all the world to us. We do not always speak as freely as we should, and we're ashamed of that. Because the truth is, he means the world to us. Would you prepare our lives, prepare our hearts, prepare our words that when the time comes, we'd be ready to give the answer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.